Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. This is episode 24. Robbie here. And uh, if you're anything like me, then you're going to be in for a treat with this episode with Jeffrey Wotherspoon. I absolutely loved listening back um, to this interview just now. Uh, now, Jeffrey came as a recommended guest from Katrina Horry, who many of you will remember from episode four of the show. Um, good friend of mine, good friend of the podcast. And um, Katrina is, a, is an expert connector and she doesn't often make uh, connections except when they're really worth making. And then so I was intrigued when she recommended Jeffrey. I looked into his background and thought he would be a great guest and he definitely didn't disappoint. So, look, profound moments of connection illuminate Jeffrey's story, um, which has taken him from a crossroads of uncertainty to becoming an executive and life coach, international trainer and conflict resolution specialist. You'll hear in this episode that it's a journey he reflects on with happiness and pride, but also real authenticity as he as he talks about the things that have guided him along the way, uh, overcoming loneliness and conflict and, and really despair to pursue a calling that has absolutely instilled him with purpose and, and earned him an amazing reputation and as a motivator, a leader, a, a an instigator of change, a trainer, uh, you know, and just someone who's built a, a business basically purely on referral. And that, that tells us how great he is at the work he does. That includes working with young people, sensing his value for the first time, to bringing truth and, and revelation to people in prisons. And, and uh, you know, Jeffrey throughout has been guided by his faith, family and, and an amazing work ethic. Um, we talk about bridging the empathy gap to work with hard to reach groups um, the answers we hold inside ourselves often without, often without knowing. We talk about prayer and the forms of guiding practices that Jeffrey uses um, and balancing all the associate coaching work he does with really committed private clients. Jeffrey also speaks about the patterns and habits that have emerged through the coronavirus pandemic, but uh, probably at the core of this conversation really is Jeffrey's um, relationship to God and and Jesus and his religion and that faith and how it's guided him is just such an important part of his journey and such a touching part and powerful part of this interview. Um, I was reflecting just afterwards, you know, that, that the power of being in the presence of someone with that kind of faith and the power for someone like Jeffrey in those practices and as someone who's not personally religious in that way, you know, and many of us who aren't, and how much we wrestle with um, the the overthinking, what to do, the lack of ability to trust in life, um, and the difference that that someone like Jeffrey and his faith, you know, the difference it makes in his ability to trust what's going on and the power of of, of what's happening for him, um, and probably you know, almost nowhere is that as clear as as when he talks about purpose. And how purpose gives him energy, gives him hope, gives him direction, and the different ways that he finds that both through his his religion, his relationship to to God and Jesus, but also um, the different practices that he has. Um, it's also worth catching, actually, Jeff. One of one of the parts of Jeffrey's background is, is that he worked at Kids Company, and um, if you're in the UK, you'll probably have some from four or five years ago. And, and Jeffrey talks about this a bit: the kind of controversial end of Kids Company. Now. The reason I highlight this now is that between recording this interview and releasing it, so in February 2021, there was a, you know, the kids' company was back in the news because the, uh, the for various reasons, but basically because the directors who had been disqualified from being directors of other organizations had that ruling reversed in the high court. 
And it just got me back into reading about Kids Company and the ex really extraordinary facts around it that basically the reasons it shut down were because of an uh, you know an unfounded uh, investigation into criminality and it's a really sad story and because the the bad news was so big at the time back in 2015 the good news wasn't so big in 2021 and so I thought it was just worth noting that really it's worth checking out I'll put a link to to the recent the recent news story in the show notes um but that's an aside really and I don't want to distract from any more from what is just an amazing chance to experience Jeffrey um, in this interview and his story and his journey um, and you know I'm just really grateful to Jeffrey for um, his honesty and authenticity in this interview and you hear his big heart right from the start when he congratulates me on the fact that we had a you know we recorded this in November and we had a baby on the way at the time she's now here she's called Leah um and and she's absolutely present in our, our life she's she's napping now actually so I should be keeping my voice down but um yeah look Jeffrey's got a huge heart it's going to be a, it's an absolute pleasure to get um for me to get to introduce you to him and I hope you um love listening to this episode as much as I did Jeffrey welcome to the coach's journey podcast Thank you very much, Robbie. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's really nice. We've had this conversation booked in for a little while. And I've been really looking forward to it. Um, and maybe just start us off by, like, do you remember when the first time you heard the word coaching? Or maybe it's not quite the word, is it? What I mean is when you first hear of the concept coaching or the word coaching used to mean the kind of work that, that you and I do. Yeah. And before I start, Robbie, um, we obviously we were talking just before the recording started. So I want to give you a big shout out on your good news um, of your new family member joining yeah. you um, next year. So congratulations to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much. And actually, by the time this episode comes out, because we're recording yeah. it, when are we? End of uh, November 2020. Yeah. But it probably won't come out until the spring sometime. Hopefully, by the time people hear this, there will be a little swale in the world um, amazing, and that's a amazing touch wood and that's an exciting thing for us we're in a you know for, you know it's it's always interesting it's big change in life coming up yeah. And yeah, yeah yeah it's interesting to think about that and where we are with it but but mostly we're just really excited actually um there's a little Fantastic. bit obviously there's bits there's anxiety Fantastic. and wondering what um you know how it'll work and have we got everything ready and Will we be able to keep it alive and all those kinds of things? But um, we're also excited, been enjoying it. It's been one of the it's been one of the real pleasures of of lockdown, actually, of of COVID. Yeah. It's been that Emma's been home the whole time um, instead Fantastic. of normally, normally being at work. And we've got to spend a, a lot of time just the two of us, which has been, I think, a really nice time to be pregnant, actually. Yeah, yeah, and you know, my wife and I, um, we always talk about now is probably the best time to have. Um, a child, you know, just because of even things like paternity leave, which I'm sure doesn't apply in your case anyway. But, you know, just just being at home and even working from home. So that's great. And yeah, you know, um, so it's, it's your first, right? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. Like um, we were doing our some antenatal classes at the weekend on Zoom, of course. And um, yeah. the woman who ran it, the facilitator, Wendy, she was saying that you know, from the groups that have 
So she's been facilitating, she feels that that's her job, right? Facilitating antenatal yeah. classes, lots of couples going through this kind of period. And she's kept, she keeps in touch with some of them after they've had the baby. And she's been talking to parents who, who, yeah, on, I think this is one of the interesting things about the, the lockdown, the COVID period is it gives us different, it's forced many of us into different patterns. And then we'll get to choose after it goes back to normal, whether, yeah. which of them we want to keep. And one of the ones yeah. she's been saying, she's heard a lot, particularly from dads has been, God, I just can't imagine what it would have been like if I had been yeah. back to work after two or three weeks. Um, instead of being, she said, what's interesting is a lot of them have just changed the working from home has enabled them to really change the pattern of their working so that they yeah. take more breaks during the day, which enables them to, to be with the baby or support Amazing. their partner. Um, and they work a little bit longer into the evenings yeah. because they yeah, want yeah. to get their work done and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's, it's a really nice time from that point of view. Um, and, and I think there's been some challenges like um, we were saying a little bit before we switched on as well. Like I've been, I've been wondering if I, my energy feels a bit different in the last couple of days. And I've been wondering if that's like news of the vaccine and sense that there might be an end in sight. Of course, this might be, if people are listening to this in March or April, this might be like, uh, they'll be laughing at me because the vaccine will by then been proved to not work and we'll be in another two years of lockdown or something. Oh, um, gosh, please not. Let's, let's hope not. But um, yeah, there's a sense like the thing that I, the reason I wouldn't have wanted to have a baby maybe uh, earlier in, in lockdown is because it would have been really difficult for family to visit. And it, mm. one of the things that's mm. been really strange about it is that, you know, no one else has felt the baby kick, right? Apart from me and Emma, because no, no, no yeah. one touch, is allowed to touch each other. Yeah. yeah. In a different time in our life, you know, we'd have been visiting our families. We'd have been uh, hanging out with friends and I'm sure a bunch of them would have already interacted with, with the little, the little thing. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think it is a, it's a, like, obviously COVID, you know, has been a tragic thing for lots of people and a really difficult thing for everyone, I think, including me. And then the social science, the kind of amateur social scientist in me is really interested about everything like that as well that we've just been talking about. How how has the last kind of, before we go back to that important question about how you found out about coaching, mm. as we're talking about it, I think it's 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 important. It's almost impossible not to when you're having mm. a conversation with someone these days. And mm. it's, how has your experience of the last, what are we like, eight, nine months been? Eight, nine, yeah, eight, nine months. So... I think my experience generally and overall has been a positive one. Um, when <laughs> lockdown happened in March, my work basically came to a pause. And that was really strange considering how busy I was. But I think, you know, I'm in the sort of, and I'll do an intro later. Or I think, I, I don't know, actually think I'll do an intro because my bio's there. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I, yeah. I'll have done an intro by now on okay. the, on the yeah. podcast people listening. But, <laughs> but, for, but for people that just, just bring us in though. So, uh, at, you know, come like 1st of March, mm. what did your work look like going forward? What kind of things were you, were coming up? What were you, what were you working on? I, I had... So okay, so so that's that's this is interesting because what lockdown's done is changed my working habits. So oh. I'm a coach and a trainer, but I was predominantly a, um, a trainer prior to lockdown. So I, I mostly did training, and I had a few sort of training requests coming up. March was probably going to be my best month that I had ever had, and then lockdown sort of had happened, and um, things got postponed, and things just weren't getting booked in, and. It just it was just sort of empty, and I thought, oh my goodness, what's this? But you know, I just 
just had to keep the faith and say, let's see how things go. And um, fortunately, I'm involved in quite a few things. So there's one charity that I work for. Um, I say I work for, I, 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 don't, I do some work for them um, a, a couple of hours a month. Um, and I also do some training for them. And they are really sort of more or less the only work I kind of had for about three months. Um, and then conversations happening. But just to say, got to about, so May happened and I got a new contract. I got a, a new associate contract with um, a charity called the Young Women's Trust, which for me was a fantastic sort of new kind of breakthrough and, and, and way to, to, to work and do what I love doing, um, coaching. And then around May, conversations began to happen. Companies started to kind of find their feet and stuff like that. So then I noticed the training beginning to pick up. And then come July, um, we're sort of back to normal, more or less working every day. And then, yeah, um, you know, if we talk about September, just sort of busy. And when we bring it to November, when we're having this conversation, um, flat out, yeah, you, um, you were saying before this that you were like, you've already had two meetings before this call. And I've, yeah. you got to say, all I've done before this call is like shower, do a bit of working out and drink a cup of coffee. So like clearly your it, it's yeah. your business has picked yeah. back up again, right? It's, it's picked up hugely. So, you know, this call for context is at 10 a.m. And I had an 8 and then a sort of 8.30 that went into sort of 9. Um, and then I just really kind of had breakfast and kind of prepared myself to have this at 10. And to be honest, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. But yeah, I've been, and I'll say the last two weeks, so last week and this week, probably my my two busiest weeks of working ever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's amazing. And there was some sort of time management errors on my part because um, I've, I've got sort of a lot of delivery to do, whether it be training, webinars, um, this is, the second podcast I'm recording this week. Um, I've had two interviews yesterday. So training, webinars, interviews, podcast. Um, that's all kind of doing stuff, right? But then I've got development stuff as well for things that some things I'm going to do and some things like immediately and some things I'm going to do later. So amazing to have all this work that I'm very grateful for. I just conscious, especially sort of the one of the webinars I did um and the webinar I did on Tuesday, um, probably my most stressful sort of work this year, only in the sense that I didn't put two and two together, that it was the first time I was going to do this type of webinar. Um, so in terms of the prep I needed to do would be sort of a lot more. And basically I was working all the time. When did I have time to do the, when did I have time to prep for the webinar? So I worked very silly on sociable hours, which I've tried to get away from. You know, that um, I worked on Saturday from one to six. Then Monday I had a full day. So I, I actually didn't deliver the course that finished in the evening. So I finished the course, let's say 8.30. I've had a bit of dinner. Then I've st- continued my Saturday prep of the webinar till sort of after midnight on Monday um, to wake up at five to sort of do some more prep. Um, just to be able to deliver the webinar um, at 12 o'clock. And I just said, I'm not going to do that again. 
Yeah. But it was it was it was learning, you know. I just missed it. I wasn't sort of thinking straight um, in terms of how much would have needed to sort of go in. So yeah, you know, I take that as an opportunity, and I suppose my, my my happiest thing is I did the webinar, and it was it was a great success. It was, it was a really good success. So you know, I just take great learning from that. Yeah, and I can hear it's like I think that's been really it's been my experience too that that. It'd be great to predict everything and always catch mm. everything, but mostly the big learnings come from oh, I really shouldn't have arranged yeah. these things like this, you know. Yeah. And just really, you know that it's only for me. I don't know how you think about it, but it feels like that's how my boundaries have developed. It's just ah, oh, wait, I really don't like losing. You know, I, I once delivered a, I was once facilitating a, a day of a leadership program and. I, I think it fell on like the Tuesday after Easter Monday. Of course, yeah. And usually for Easter Monday, we're at my wife's, for Easter, we're at my wife's family's yeah. house. And yeah. I just suddenly realized, wow, I really, really don't want to have to leave that that early. And I couldn't have yeah. known how much that would annoy me or like, yeah, not me until it happened, um, really. I mean, maybe yeah. I could have known, I could have been a bit more aware, but <laughs> it's nice then because then it's just like, oh, okay, that does bother me. And then also I learned from that actually that when I did it it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought right <laughs> like I mm. I have quite a strong freedom value so kind of every time my freedom gets restricted in some way by you know a meeting <laughs> or something mm. like that as was I get a bit annoyed and then mostly I love the I love the actual the actual stuff once I get there so it was both ways um and what was the webinar that you were delivering for the first time and what was new about it so my background is um, sort of on the front line working with young people who, for example, have been in gangs, um, county lines, if you've ever heard of that. It's kind of organised. I have, but yeah, explain it a bit for people who, yeah. people who haven't. So, so yeah, uh, my background is working with young people who've been involved in sort of knife crime, gangs and serious youth violence. Um, in conjunction with that often comes county lines. And it's basically an organised crime sort of thing where... Um, big players or big drug dealers will find sort of more vulnerable young people um, and send them out to counties, um, maybe days or weeks at a time to sell drugs. And it works in one of two ways. So um, young people from London will go out to counties and sell drugs. But that, that's, that model is, I would probably say, not being used as much anymore and it's been increasingly used less and less because, you know, you may go to some areas that are predominantly white and you kind of see um, perhaps a young black person who really, really stands out and everyone knows the game now. So some of the other things they're doing is sort of going to the counties and, and finding people who actually live there, um, sort of vulnerable people who live there and getting them to, to do the work. So, um, yeah, that, that was sort of my background. Um, when I, when I, when I certified as a coach, I was still doing that work because I actually became a coach to make me more effective in doing that work and do it in prisons. And then, um, uh, I'm conscious of like going into too much detail and then you've asked me a question. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. It's my my fault. It's like, um, people who know me, like I love, uh, caveats and, and yeah, little, going off down little um little of alleys course. so feel free don't worry so, this conversation we can okay. go anywhere so what i'll do is i'll answer the question and i'm probably <laughs> sure we'll, we'll come into that but yeah, um, yeah. yeah so you know I, I i was a coach um, i am a coach and i've 
I still do bits of that type of work now, but I don't hold cases. So now I do a lot more training and, you know, I train in different fields. One of the fields that I train in is sort of the social work field, uh, maybe training social workers, yacht workers, um, on, on things such as best practice or, for example, managing adolescents at risk. And what's new about the webinar is there's um, a company that I'm, I'm sort of newly connected to. Um, started off doing some consulting for them and now um, it's looking like I'm going to be their lead on sort of gangs work, but they use virtual reality. So it's a whole new field of work and they basically use a virtual reality experience to work with professionals, parents or carers of young people to enable the the, the group I just mentioned, the professionals and, and carers, to experience what things are like for a young person. Uh, and they have so many clips, you know, some of the new clips they've got, which I supported them with, was actually a county line clip. So was, what is it like to actually be in that environment, to be, for example, speaking to the drug dealer in the car, or to be in, in sometimes they, because they, um, they're there for weeks at a time or days at a time, they usually live in people's houses, i.e. drug users' houses, um, as, as a base. So, you know, we've got sort of footage in there. So it gives the professionals and carers their experience. And part of that experience is to, to deepen empathy. You know, there's a lot of stats about the effectiveness of VR in behavior change. So ultimately, this is for behavior change in the professionals and to be more effective in their output and the work they do and have that deeper sense of empathy for the young person because you know one of the things I found when working with that client group is if you do not understand that I don't mean psychologically or theoretically understand that if you do not understand on a personal emotional level what it's like for them then your conversations with them will be will be different you know it's almost like one person speaking English and another person speaking Chinese it's not going to be effective but if you understand where they're coming from which I do um, you can speak to them on their level where they're at and bring them from that place to to a better place so yeah the webinar was basically the VR content how can it be used in the reduction of crime and gangs and serious youth violence and I was termed the expert that was going to explain that and um it was bringing my knowledge but also what was new for me was the vr element of it yeah. and actually using that kind of experience um yeah and i've actually i, I got the I, I got a vr headset delivered to my house this morning actually okay so um, you're gonna be able to like really really try it yeah. out and, and get into it precisely because we've the, the new um, clips that I told you about, for example, the County Lines one, that has literally just been finished. And I'm not even, some clips have just been finished. And I'm not sure it's totally finished. So that's going to come out in January. And, you know, there's going to be a second webinar. So I've got the VR um, to be able to, to experience it. So when I do the webinar next time, it'll be, I'll be coming from a better place. Yeah. 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 And, and what an interesting, you know, it was, what was it like? Th- Three years ago, I was at an event in London, a kind of at the at the Royal Institution, which is like a kind of science place. Hope my friend mm. Haley, who used to work there, isn't listening and just heard me describe that describe it as a science place. Uh, they do some they do lectures at Christmas apparently, which some people know about and I'd never heard of. But um, anyway, mm. they had a, a really great like um, as some of the museums and stuff in London sometimes do. They had a great like late night event with lots of stuff going on and. It, mm. 
there was some like really like set like VR speech marks there yeah. and it was kind of amazing and it was a different experience to that stuff but that was three years ago and just you think about how much the technology goes on you know there's an arc where, yeah. where that stuff is going to be more and more and more um what do you say you were used for so many different applications and yeah cool thing i imagine to be really helping use such powerful technology for some of the first times in an area where it could make a real difference because like you say what an amazing way to bridge that empathy gap yeah and that's that's what we need and i say we need more effective practitioners not to say there's something wrong with the practitioners that we've got but something new to to spite them and to support them with the behavior change and the work they do is extremely challenging and their volumes and their caseloads are are, are huge and it's just really bringing things to life in a different way and this is kind of where our focus is at and what's the are you allowed to say what's the name of the company just in case people are interested yeah in yeah yeah so um their, their name's anster a-n-s-t-e-r nice we'll put Anster. a link in there for people listening yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. put links to the stuff we talk about in the in the show notes wherever people are listening but i i'm sure having heard that like me loads of people will be We'll be really curious about that. And there's already this thing coming out, Jeffrey, about your work, which I saw from the, you know, we exchanged some emails and you kind of mentioned it. And, um, I, you know, it, it reads in your bio and on your LinkedIn page, all those kind of things of the way that you, you work with a lot of different organizations. And at some point in this conversation, I want to speak about that really and how it comes yeah. about and what you'd like about it and what's difficult about it and that kind of thing. But yeah. first let's, let's rewind first back to that first question yeah. <laughs> before, before we got derailed by conversations about babies and social work uh, and virtual reality. So yeah. you, you did this, you, you worked in these fields that you've just been talking about. And then at some yeah. point to become a better practitioner, you learned some coaching skills. And was that the first time you'd heard of, of coaching as a thing? As a thing. So, yes. So what happened is I was actually on an internship in the field, um, in the field that I then went on to work into uh, work, work in. And my line manager at the time, a lady called Daniela Glasgow. And I just wanted to give her a shout out because uh, at that time as well, where I was in my life is I was at a point in my own life where I had made a transition and transition from potentially going down the wrong negative road into a positive road. And that internship was my first proper experience of the workplace. I was extremely vulnerable in terms of fragile, in terms of like my confidence and do I think I should be in this place? Um, you know, can I actually do it? Demands and stuff. Because I, I never actually saw myself, for example, working as a, a professional in a meaningful role. So I was, you know, I was, some people could look at me and say I was confident, for example, on the road. But when it came to... Um, like the professional world, I really wasn't confident. And I suppose that's normal for any young person. But I think where I was coming from was in a totally different place. And Daniela um, threw me in the deep end, but was next to me the whole way through. Mm -hmm. So she gave me massive sort of ego boosts. Not ego, so that's the wrong thing. Not not ego boosts, like sort of confidence boost. And... Um, and, and opportunities. And just one of the things she did as well is she kept on talking about coaching and she is a coach. And she said she was gonna do some career coaching with me. And I remember it was me and another sort of lady and we were sitting down and she was asking us questions which we were writing down. And it was only a couple of questions, but the experience I had was indescribable. And I used to describe it as, as 
magic. But then I learned sort of a new word for it was insight. But I want to say this was deep insights, deep, profound insights into my mind and thinking. And I realized somebody had asked me questions and the answers I had put down on paper came from me. These answers were in me and I had no idea. Mm. And I just thought, what is this? And (laughs) I knew that's what I wanted and that's what I needed. Um, And in my mind, I said, you know, when I grow up thinking maybe in many years time and I get enough money, I'll be a coach and use this to inform the work I do. And it happened a lot sooner than I expected. Yeah. Oh, so it's a beautiful story, um, Jeffrey. Uh, just before we kind of, I want to, you know, it's, I want to hear a bit more about that experience, really. And like, big shout out to, was it Danielle or Danielle? Daniela. Daniela. Daniela Glasgow. To Daniela, definitely. And like, what an amazing. It's just a great. Um, that story is such a a good reminder of the impact yeah. we can have in our yeah. lives on other people. And we don't necessarily yeah. like, I'm sure you probably have told her, but it's like, we, we yeah, never yeah. know really, because you could, you could have that yeah. conversation with someone just from one workshop, right? That, that insight that you had, like these answers came from me. Yeah. You don't need to be asked many questions necessarily to get that insight. And, and it's important to remember that we can have that, that impact on people. We can support people in that way. But I wondered if you could just say something, whatever feels present about the two paths and what took you on the positive one? You said there was a possibility you could have gone on a more negative one. And I wondered if there was anything that, yeah, what can you tell us about what, what was it that took you on what you described as the positive path? Mm. So, yeah. Probably a long story and a complex <laughs> thing, but what, what comes up? Yeah, it, it is a long story and I'll try and give the short of it. The reason I laugh is because it's, it's a very personal thing. And potentially not something people expect to hear in a professional capacity or maybe even on a podcast. But I think there's there's no way I can tell the story without being authentic and telling it as it is and what happened to me and sort of what caused me to change my life. So very shortly, sort of going even back, you know, this is I'll go back to secondary school, but I won't give any sort of long stories, just highlights, because I think that gives some context to where I was and where my mind was at. So I've lived in both South and East London. I went to secondary school in South London. Uh, I went to school in Peckham. And um, I'm the same age as Damilola Taylor, for if you, and for those of you who know him. So but when I went to, because I think Peckham is a bit of a trendy place to live now, and I think everyone still recognizes it's got its issues, but it's seen as more of a trendy place. When I went to school in Peckham, it wasn't the place we know it to be now. And, um, you know, there was m- m- much influence from that. What ended up... I, I I lived in South London, went to school in Peckham, which is also in South London, and I moved to East London. With that move, I completed school in South London, but went to college in East London. So I, start, I sort of went to college alone, basically. Um, my year group generally didn't do well um, with sort of GCSE, so not a lot of people actually even went to college. So that was kind of a break, and I still kept in touch with some people. Then when I was in college, I sort of made new friends, etc., when we got to second year, there was obviously a new cohort of first years and we we didn't click in terms of the, 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 the male group. We just didn't click as a group. And around fireworks day, so actually, you know, around this time, because we're in November, yeah, so literally, um, it, it might have, yeah, it was around fireworks night, there was, there was a conflict. And the conflict happened sort of 
just outside of college, one of the roads outside of college, and it escalated that evening um, to become quite a serious matter, which police were then involved in. Um, we, some of us went to college and there just wasn't a lot of college there. And, and actually of the first years, I think only maybe one or two, a couple of them came to college and a couple of us second years came to college. And then it was lunchtime and some more second years had come to college who that, that hadn't been there all day. And despite what happened the evening before, they still wanted to continue the conflict and actually started it outside the college gates where everyone could see. So me and a friend were breaking it up. Like, what the hell is going on? Do you guys understand that this is already a serious matter and this is what you're doing? So we 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 split it up. We went off to lunch. When we came back from lunch, and this is, I think this is so significant as well, um, even in terms of the attire we used to wear. I was wearing a night jacket. My friend was wearing an Adidas jacket. When we came through the gates, the security guard called called us back and told my friend to go to the office. He needs to be seen. Long story short, the conflict that had happened outside of the college, a boy with an Adidas jacket was headbutting another boy. And that's how we described him. My friend and I are actually the ones who broke it up. But the, the one who had headbutted had gone away. The one who had been headbutted had also been sent home because the college had also become aware of the conflict outside of school and the police. So they knew this is a bigger thing. So the one who had been headbutted couldn't, for example, ID my friend and say that wasn't him. And long story short, my friend was told to go home and knock to college pending police investigation. Now, police investigations, depending on the matter, can be quite a long time. So that basically meant um, he, he had to miss that year of college. And a few of my other friends um, didn't come back. What that meant is I was kind of alone again. And that was positive because I was then able to focus and get some grades to go to university. What that meant for me is, again, I went to university alone. Now I went to Brunel University. So that's in London, Zone 6. It's not miles away. But when I kind of reflected on perhaps how I had been and the kind of people I was used to associating with, those type of people didn't really go to university. So although I'm still in London University, I, I don't feel as though I necessarily fit in. Plus, I haven't necessarily gone with friends. And I do... I do sort of recognize and see people, but they're just people that I've seen somewhere. And also my mindset at the time, and, you know, I'll just be honest, I thought I was a bit too cool for school. So, you know, I thought, well, I'm not going to hang out with these people because, you know, I'm, I'm cool. They're not. And what that basically meant is I was kind of alone and isolated. You know, in terms of my personality and how I was, I actually knew a lot of people. So, you know, I could walk on campus and sort of say hello to quite a few people. But in terms of did I have friends that I could say what you up to and spend some time with, I think the answer was really no. So that began to take me into a dark place. Um, you know, with the kind of friends that I did have, um, just the distance meant the friendship, you know, the friendship wasn't meaningful enough to, to, to kind of keep it when I was at uni doing something and they're doing something else. So I basically felt like I didn't have friends is where I'm going with this, which took me to an even darker place. I was struggling with the uni work. Um, you know, I, I basically didn't, I, I used to kind of do exams and stuff on, on memory, if that, if that makes sense. Like 
I just, uh, I can't, it sounds weird, but I didn't know how to learn mm. or, or study. Well, and, what were you, and you were studying psychology, right? Were you studying psychology? I was studying psychology, mm. yeah. So I would just kind of take in information and maybe what I remember is what I remember and kind of go off that. That's how I was learning. But university is very different. You, you don't, you learn in a different way. And there's a lot of reading, which is something I didn't used to do. So, you know, I'm having to learn many new skills in the volume. I was struggling with the work is where I'm going with this. And I just thought, look, this life isn't for me. It's kind of the conclusion I made. And, you know, I was, I was quite angry. And I found myself in a place where I was asking the question, why am I here? And it's kind of like, why am I on the planet? And I thought, you know, life is not going well for me at the minute. Um, I'd sort of been in trouble with the police. So I had a criminal record. And, you know, my, my mindset then was, if you've got a criminal record, you can't do anything for your life. So I was like, life hasn't felt great. The future is not looking great. I've got no friends. I'm struggling with the work. Like, what's what's going to happen? I thought, and why am I here? And I, you know, I didn't ask to be. You know, I've, I've been put here, and it's, it's 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 difficult. So I just thought, yeah, I'm just gonna like. I basically gave up, and I thought, when it's December, I'm just going to um, just gonna not come back to uni. Like, I'll stay because I've paid the rent and stuff, but. After December, I'm just not going to come back to uni. Oh, I think I, I think I might have considered doing my first year, but as in just sort of being on campus and just being a bit reckless, just trying to have fun and some stuff like that. Then I also remember seeing sort of a bus driver adver- advertisement saying they got like 24K a year. And I thought, to be honest, I don't see myself getting that. So I could probably be a bus driver if I get a driver's license. I just drive a bus and I thought 24k a year at that time seemed like good money for me. I thought, yeah, I can <laughs> I can do something with that. And then I also thought um, I'll sell drugs as well. So if I get 24k as a bus driver and, you know, I sort of sell drugs when I'm not working, there's potential I can actually have a good life, you know, maybe have a family, go on holidays. And that's literally what I thought, you know, and and that would be my lot. Um, but I also then had the other mindset that, and if it doesn't go well for me, I'll just be a crazy person. You know, I will sell drugs, be the biggest and baddest drug dealer I can be. If someone crosses me, I'll be the sort of like ruthless, which will probably get me into prison or killed. And if I went to prison, I'd probably be a bit more ruthless and that might get me killed. And then at least I wouldn't be here anymore anyway. Because mm-hmm. I, I I wasn't kind of in a mindset or, I, you know, my personality type wasn't about suicide as such. You know, that, that wasn't a consideration, which I'm grateful for. So I just thought if if someone takes me, then OK, you know, at least it's easier that way. So I don't actually even remember your question now, but I think that was my university experience. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, you, you told it really well. And I just want to catch that, you know. Uh, you like yeah, yeah. And I, I, I heard it in there. You know, I mean, like, you know, one of the things is, what if you've been wearing the Adidas jacket, right? Like, Precisely. there's like that moment Precisely. there. And, and it's it's rare that we kind of get to see that, I think, that clearly in our lives. Although for many people, yeah. there are there are kind of moments like that. They're just, but that's such a stark one. But also, I just want to really acknowledge, I think, well, look, first of all, thanks for sharing that story, especially that that final part of it, I guess, because I don't think that... 
you know, I don't know how many people know that other people think like that and have those mm. thoughts. And I like mm. have had moments in my life and I, I always think like, I just, you know, <laughs> it's like Bohemian Rhapsody is a massively cliched song. And yet I find myself thinking about that bit where he says, I don't want to die, but I sometimes wish I'd never been born at all. And it's like, mm. I'm not going to kill mm. myself, but it's like, what is the, like, mm. why am I here? So mm. thanks for sharing that, that part of the story because it feels important. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just to say, I do remember your question. So it's about transition. So I've actually got to the good point. So, yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey, if, if, that, if the stuff it. you've said already wasn't the good point, then this next bit is going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that, that was kind of that road. And how yeah. did I get onto the other road? Yeah. So the, the, the details are very long. So I won't do the details, but the high level summary is the flat I lived in at university, the halls of residence was on the ground floor next to the entrance. And as I say, I knew a lot of people but didn't have any friends. But what that sometimes meant is if someone was coming into my halls of residence to see someone else, they might just give me a shout and my window was always open. And what happened is particular people started coming to me and, and meeting me. And these particular people all had one thing in common. They were Christians. So young Christian people and the nature of our conversation, I didn't actually even say anything to them, but I'm, I'm literally like, it's now everyone I'm meeting somehow is a Christian and we get talking about God and some stuff like that. And the long story short is I thought, let me sort of look into this. And then there's, there's, there's a lot of detail, which uh, I suppose is a long story in itself, but I had some stuff, which I would definitely say were divine interventions and encounters. I had some very specific, meaningful things which were powerful encounters for me. Powerful encounters so much so, I was convinced uh, there is a God. And I then became convinced he knows me. I then became convinced he cares for me, he loves me. And I suppose probably most importantly, he, he has a plan for me. And this is where my transition came when I knew he had a plan for me. And, you know, as, as, as Christians um, or a particular uh, denominations of Christians, we, we talk about being born again, which basically means we, we give our lives to Christ in that we believe, you know, they say Jesus died on the cross to save our sins, etc. So I, I, I went through that process. I believed in Jesus' work, that he died on the cross for me. And ultimately, for example, I could go to heaven. But still in the present time, there was work to do. And then I went to a talk and it was a preacher. And he said, if you want to know the purpose for something, you have to ask its creator. For example, if you want to know the purpose for a plate, ask the one who made it. Mm. And he said, if you want to know the purpose for your life, ask your creator. I thought, very interesting. I do not have a purpose for my life. So I, I, I began to ask that, that question and I didn't hear an answer immediately. But what did happen is it came to the point of my uni experience where it was time for me to do a placement. And I went to Brunel where you have two six-month placements instead of a year long. So it's time for the first one. And they ask us certain questions. One of the questions is, have you got a criminal record? And which my answer was yes. Then the advisor said, you can't get a placement. Like no one's really going to give you a placement because of this. And that was the problem. And, you know, this is where I've started to turn my life around. Then she did something which, in hindsight, she probably shouldn't have done. 
she said to me, there's this school who work with children who have learning and behavioural difficulties and they are desperate for people, her words. So I, I kind of had to take the kind of reject deduction. And uh, and um, she said, they will take you on and still do your CRB back then. It's now called a DBS. Yeah. So she said, so, so people who don't know, that's like a, it's like a criminal a check of a check of the criminal record and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sort of criminal record check. And she said, you know, they're going to do that after you start. So we just have to see what happens. I went to the school and what I could say is it was, it was for children who had behavioral and learning difficulties. And a lot of them lived a particular life outside of school. So there's a saying sort of saying real recognized real. And I suppose when I went to the school, they could probably see some of them in me or vice versa you know they just recognize that hold on you know uh, there's something about this guy that I kind of click with and what that meant is they they were drawn to me essentially and what I didn't realize is in some of those schools the children actually don't do any work so for example they would just want to speak to me in lessons and because I would see a teacher I'd think that I'm going to get in trouble so I'd say to them you need to do your work because I'm going to get in trouble and the fact that they did their work was huge. And what that meant is I started getting praise and, you know, they were telling the head and the deputy head and stuff like that. So that was the first time in my life I sort of started getting praise and recognition. So let, and let, me just, it, let me just check yeah. I got there, Jeffrey. So what was happening was mostly the kids weren't doing work. and But because yeah. they wanted to speak to you, because they saw something in you and had that connection. And they so they, you would say, well, no, you can't, you can't speak to me now. You've got to do work. And then they go and yeah. do the work. And, and that was a real, that was a shift for them. That was a real achievement. That was, yeah. a, that was a real achievement in the school because they, they like didn't do work. It'd become like a culture. So they just kind of go, go into class sometimes, but they, they don't actually work. So it was like, you know, it was brilliant. Jeffrey's getting them to do stuff. And because of the type of school it was, you know, lots of extracurricular activity it got to the point that I, I would sometimes go to the school, well, every day, I'd go to the school after a point and I'd have to go straight to the deputy head office, um, deputy head teacher's room. And she would say, what teacher has asked for me that day? And the teachers were almost making a case as to why they needed me with their group that particular day. So, of course, this was a huge sort of reinforcement for me because it's like, wow, like I've got skills and I'm valuable in some way. And... um yeah, and, and that's that's kind of where my journey started into sort of understanding, um, you know, kind of my path in life. But my transition was um, believing in Christ. That's 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 what the road was and, and searching for that sense of purpose. And, you know, my, my, my CRB did come through. I had the conversation with the teacher and she had no answer. Then she said, I'll get back to you. I never did. <laughs> and, you know, that was that was great. Yeah. And um, was your family religious at all? Was, did you have any of that in the background or was this a completely new new thing for you to move into at that point in life? So my, my family is really my mum and, and, you know, two younger sisters after me. They have a different father. And it, it, the answer is yes and no. You know, I'm, I'm Ghanaian originally and sometimes sort of faith is, or religion is, is mixed in the culture. So to some extent, everyone is. Mm. But um, but that's not what my journey or story is. Mine's actually a practice and living it out, as in my decisions are influenced by it. So when I actually 
made my transition. Um, that actually then, you know, not too long after that, my mum made a, a proper committed decision, mm. which which was which was beautiful. Mm. Yeah. And as you've asked that, you know, as you've asked that question, I imagine of 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 the, your maker, mm. that question: Why are you here? What's the purpose? You know, this is a. How long ago is this? Is this how? I don't know how old you are now. Like, is this t- you know, ten years ago or something? Like, um, two thousand eighteen, two thousand nineteen. Okay. Oh, so recent. So, yeah, is that recent? Oh, oh. that's it. So, so two thousand eight. Yeah. Two thousand eight. Okay. Two thousand nine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's quite. So it's so it's like twelve years now of of maybe oh, sitting sorry. with that question. I've, I've got I've got my 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 time is mixed up. I was eighteen, nineteen years old at the time, uh-huh. and it was around 2012 2013 so i'm 30 years old now yeah yeah uh okay and so that over that time of asking that question about purpose what have you learned or what do you know about your purpose now the broad view and what i'm confident on is i my purpose is to um support people to change their lives which is quite general and broad Mm. More micro than that is I believe I have a calling for people in prisons. And there's there's a couple of reasons why I believe that, which I'm happy to share. And I believe I so yeah, so that's that's the micro view of prisons. But what I've learned about purpose as well is it unfolds over time. At least that's how I've discovered my journey. So I believe my purpose was all about, for example, people in prisons. And for you know, my 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 wanting to become a coach was to solely work with people in prisons. And then I discovered, after doing that for some time, that there was more than that. And of course, there's always more than that. But it's about what I feel called to and how I feel drawn. And yeah, I I believe my purpose is really to help people have a better quality of life. Um, that's 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 ultimately what I believe and how I how that looks and how I uh, manage that looks very different. And one of the things I've learned about purpose, as I say, firstly, it develops, but sometimes, you know, because when I used to hear people say their purpose or they found it, and for example, I didn't know mine, it was, so what do I do? You know, I wanted someone to tell me mine, Mm. Um, but I, I partly kind of got told and it was much more of a discovery journey. And right now I'm at the point in my faith where I don't look to necessarily be told it would be great if I kind of hear something or have a dream, which I think is a sign. But um, I've understood it's more about following the leading I have. And again, um, I promise the listeners I'm not kooky. um, (laughs) You're kooky on this podcast, Jeffrey, definitely. Kookiness (laughs) kookiness invited and encouraged. Part part of my faith lets me know that when I'm again, I receive a Holy Spirit, we Mm. call it, from God, and he dwells within me. And I believe he communicates to me and he leads me. So I aim and I seek to follow the leading of the spirit in what I do. And that's how I fulfill my purpose. But again, in sometimes where I've been unclear on what the leading may be, I think about my immediate purpose. So for example, I'm a husband and that's a purpose of mine. So even if I don't know what else I'm doing in life, I know I'm a husband, and for me, that comes with a, like lots of responsibility. I don't mean, for example, I'm my wife's provider and stuff like that. Um, that's that's not what I mean. I mean, it comes with a lot of responsibility that my wife is now my number one priority. 
um, I'm also a son. I'm, I'm a brother, I'm a brother-in-law, I'm a son-in-law, I'm a friend. And basically, this is just how I live my life. But if I'm not too clear on, for example, what my purpose in life may be, I go back to those things and say, well, I have a purpose there. And what I found for me is purpose always gives me energy. Purpose always gives me hope. Purpose always gives me direction. So, you know, I, I see myself as a world changer, but not necessarily in an egotistical way that, you know, I am going to change the world. It's I can change it in any way, you know. I hope to have children myself one day and grow them up in the very best way. And for me, changing the world in some way, shape or form, you know, who will my children be? When I, not to change the world, that's not what, what I mean. I mean, change lives. Mm. Yeah change lives through through whatever I do and, and, and add value to lives. Yeah. 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 And, <laughs> you know, this is a difficult question, I know, but, and you've spoken to some of it there, but if, if people are out there and maybe they yeah. have this, this, they have the belief that you have and maybe yeah. they don't. Right. And, yeah. and there may be different answers in those, for those different groups. And they've got this sense like you had, it's like, hearing other people talking about their purposes, maybe hearing you talking about your purpose right now mm. with this energy that you have around it and the focus and the conviction and, mm. and people are sitting and listening to this or watching and thinking, well, yeah, what do I, 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 I want that. Like I want to feel that I know my purpose more. I want to, you know, even if I won't get it now, cause it'll unfold and it'll reveal itself. Mm. What? Like this almost feels like too small a question, but, but so take it and like go wherever comes up. But what would you advise people to do? How would you invite people to listen for that purpose? Yeah. So I'll answer and I, I can only be authentic as I have been. So I, I would ask them the same question or say the same phrase that I heard, which really got me thinking. If you want to know the purpose for something, you have to ask this creator. I'd ask people to reflect on if they first believe they've got a creator because they're a created being. And, you know, I'm not talking about the biology of it. You know, I think you first have to have that belief that you are created and there is a plan and a purpose for you. And my faith um, in Christ lets me know that it's not just me. It's not just people who believe in him. We all have a purpose. And I think if you want to know your specific purpose, your higher sort of calling or value in 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 life, you need to ask the Creator. And I would uh, proudly ask everyone to go on a journey with Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about church. I think church is a place where you can learn more about the faith. And you know, it's it's sometimes difficult to, for example, find the right one. And there's so much controversy over the church. I'm not necessarily interested in any of that stuff because that's, those are all people. And like myself, people are flawed. But God still uses people, again, like myself. So God uses flawed people to help us. So I would encourage everyone to pray. Um, and again, there are many different faiths out there. I speak for my own. So so to pray to Jesus Christ and ask him to reveal himself to them. And <laughs> I've seen this change people's lives. I mean, listen, I've, yeah, there's, there's people who I couldn't actually talk about their life in a podcast 
um, due to consequences of, of it, that I've seen Christ change their life in phenomenal ways. Like, this thing's real. So that's what I would say. And for anyone wanting something maybe not as high or, or, or a life calling, but just wanting to have a clear sense of direction maybe in the short term, then it's kind of what I said earlier. Who are you? Are you a father? Are you a brother? Are you a son? I'm talking about lots of men. Are you a mother, <laughs> sister, daughter? Are you a friend? Because I recognize not everyone has family for one reason or another. Are you a friend? Um, find purpose in that. Are you a teacher? Are you a coach? You know, who are you and what do you do? And find some purpose in that. You know, if 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 I was a if, if I was a father, for example, or uh, let me talk about who I am. I'm a husband. So if I can't think about any purpose in my life, or for example, I happen to be out of work, I happen to be, you know, not employed. So I can't necessarily find purpose in that. I'm a husband. So how can I serve my wife in the best way? Because I think that's what purpose is about as well. I think purpose is about service. So when I say, who are you? Then then who can you be for all of those people? So for example, you know, I, I aim to wake up and, and pray most mornings, every morning. Lockdown's helped, helped me to do that more consistently. And I just remembered my sisters and my aunt, who I haven't had, um, who I haven't spoken to in a couple of weeks, actually. I've had WhatsApps with one of my sisters. So I sent them all messages to say, I love you, I miss you. Um, and with my sisters, I said, we should speak soon. Now, one's 25, one's 18, 19. They might look at that and say, huh? But I think they're a bit used to me saying I love them and stuff now because that's that's been a very intentional thing I've chosen to do. And they say I love you back, you know. Um, and for me, that's what it's about. And, you know, with, with my 19-year-old sister, more who's at university I haven't spoken to her in a while so when we do speak I want to ask her that question you know you haven't reached out to me I don't necessarily know what's going on in your life how can I serve you mm. she'll probably say nothing I'll say cool <laughs> but but I want to offer that and remind her that oh your, your brother's here you know I think that mm. there's meaning in that yeah absolutely and and the other thing that I heard you say was purpose gives energy and hope and direction and I can hear yeah. how that would do it, you know, how what you've just described with your family would do that. And yeah. the same for me in lots of ways with those roles we might have. And that can be a good, it, it strikes me, you know, I've never thought this exact thought before, but it strikes me that there's a compass there, the things that give you energy and hope and direction. Like that's an interesting mixture of things, which mm. certainly not everything has. Mm. I wonder this is if this gets too personal or something like you know you can always change the direction of the conversation but I wonder if you could like <laughs> prayer can take lots of different forms yeah. I think you just said that and certainly it feels like yeah. that to me I wonder for you what does that look like because it sounds like you're getting yeah. like that that's one of your guiding practices is to like you yeah. say in the morning like is to really ask you know or to really yeah. connect in that way um, yeah. with god with jesus so what does it what does it look like for you yeah um so prayer is simply and what i've come to understand is talking to god mm. or talking to jesus you know um and and that that can be what i aim to do in the morning is have intentional time so that what that looks like is 
just quiet, you know. I used to go to one of the rooms. I actually come downstairs now, and um, just just aim to spend time with him. So praying, um, reading, reading the Word, um, I the Bible, and I also read devotionals. So devotionals are sort of every everyday encouragements of the Christian faith. So there's a particular website called UCB, and you know the forward slash is Word for today. And every single day they give a devotional and like an encouragement with with biblical kind of things back in it. And it's about it's, it's about everything, you know. It's about family, it's about work, it's about time, it's about prayer, it's about it's about life, you know, it's to help your life. So I usually read that in the morning and have kind of focused quiet time. But we also sort of speak about worship. So, um, well, worship music, if if. We, we we call it worship music, so it's basically listening to sort of Christian songs that are in current, and some of them will talk about how God has really come through in people's lives. So I kind of do those as thanksgiving. Some of those might just really talk about the majesty and the power of God, and that helps me to reflect on who He is. And what I also try to do, and I and I try to give myself an hour to do this, you know, in the morning. What I also try to do is sit and listen. That's what I find most challenging. Because my relationship with Jesus isn't like the conversation I'm having with you. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't say he responds to me verbally um, and I hear him audibly, although I would say there have been times where I've heard his voice. And for anyone listening, what does it sound like? It was my voice. <laughs> um, how did I know it was Jesus? Some of the thing, Some of the times I'm thinking about, he's asked me to do some stuff which I really didn't want to do. I've done it and it's kind of worked come through, if you see what I'm saying. But um, yeah, I just try to listen and hear if there's anything to hear or be guided. And it's really in the prayer time, things come to me. So it might just be because I'm in a peaceful place that, for example, I begin thinking about my sisters and stuff. And and that's fine. You know, I don't need it to, to be more than that. But it might also be God putting them on my heart. And I'm at the point in my faith where it doesn't matter if it's God or if it's me. It's a good and nice and right thing to do, touching with my sisters, because I sort of lived yesterday with all the several, numerous, multiple things I had to do. And that was my focus. And, and I wasn't thinking of them. So if the one time I do think about them is in my quiet time, well, actually, that then enables me to send a message rather than never send it. So yeah, that's that's what my sort of prayer looks like. And really my prayer is just talking to God. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, it's nice to just sit with that really. It's a lot in there, I think, for people to kind of hold and absorb. Um And just feel into, you know. One of the interesting things is that I'm thinking at the moment about, you know, and I've been thinking about it in different ways. And sometimes it's it's with from a more explicitly religious point of view, and sometimes it's different things. There's a kind of question about spiritual practice, you know, which is, let's say. You know, it's been a part of humanity for a long time in different ways. 
mm. in all sides of the world. And it's quite absent in our society for a lot of people. And that's not, I'm not sure that's a good thing. <laughs> um, probably, you know, other things fill that, fill that void in, in not necessarily a, a good way. And I think there's an important question for many of us to ask um, who don't have the kind of, the perhaps explicit, um, I don't know what you'd call it, devotion that you do. Um, mm. How do we make that time that connects us with all these things that you're talking about? Service, um, purpose, ourselves, mm. and something bigger than us. And it's a big question. I think a lot oh, of people gosh. could do with thinking about that. Yeah, to be honest, I'm getting a bit emotional. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't, I think it's two different things. I think if you're in the faith, then you make the time. Yeah. I think if you're not in the faith, it's not about making time. It's about firstly getting in the faith. Because I don't, I, I mean, I know that there are people who, for example, don't have my belief who, um, who pray and meditate and can probably say what I'm saying just without the religious element. So I guess you then find a way to make the time for you. You know, if it's important, you find a way to prioritize it. And, you know, I don't say that in, in any particular way. Like my faith is very important to me. And pre-lockdown, I found it, I, I don't remember having an hour mm. with God. So I, I don't mean if it's important to you, you know, you do something about it with any sort of negative connotation. But I mean, you will always find the time. You know, when I couldn't have an hour with God, on the, on, on, when I get on the train, the devotions and the reading that I told you about, that's the first thing I do. Mm. I wouldn't I wouldn't look at work or any social media till I've read something. So you find some way to do it. But specifically for my journey, it's not about making time first because I don't believe that's necessarily how you can just really experience the faith the way I do. And one of the things about it that I've re I've realized is and I, and, I, and I had to make this decision. It wasn't easy for me to come to the faith because of my my beliefs about it and what I thought life would be like. So I had to make a decision between the life I was living and a new life, which didn't seem attractive, but it felt like the right thing to do, if that makes sense. It didn't seem exciting to, for example, become a Christian or or even meaningful, but I felt my life has been going away. I don't want it to go. And apparently, if I make this decision, it can go differently. I still want to have certain things in my life, but ultimately, if I have those things in the direction of my life doesn't change, things will be meaningless. So I, I went through this process and I said, okay, just, just, just do it. Take the step. And my point to that story is wherever someone's at, what I've realized about the faith is you really experience it when you first take the step. You make the commitment. Then it comes to, to pass. It's It's so weird and, you know, as it's it's like there's a story in the Bible about a disciple of Jesus called Peter walking in the water. And before there was no way for him to know what's gonna happen when he walks on the water. Only when he took his first step and he didn't sink did he realize he can walk on the water. And what I and I'm sure many people want to know is will it be safe first? <laughs> before you take the step yeah and if you understand what faith is yeah you will understand it's actually taking the step that is the faith 
and then things happen. Because faith, as the Bible says, is the absence of things hopeful and the evidence of things not seen. And that might mean nothing to some people. But what it basically means is your faith is what you hope will happen and the evidence is the action that you use to carry it out. So because of my faith and because of what I believe, my evidence is I wake up early in the morning. Sometimes I generally have early mornings. So sometimes, you know, today was 5 a.m. I, I wish I could do that every day. I, I don't. But um, today was 5 a.m. And that's that's the practical step of my faith. And then, like I say, you know, about God's audible voice, there are times where God has told me to speak to people numerous times. It's happened a lot now, so I kind of can know when it's God or not. But the first times it happened, I had this burning sense and desire that I should say something to someone. And it started off with people that I know. And I just thought, I just can't speak to this person about this. Like, they'll just think I'm a weirdo. And where's it coming from? And so many things. But it was, the, the feeling was so kind of prevalent that I also had a sense that if I don't do it, it could be an issue. And then I've gone out to do it and just gone and spoken to someone. Sometimes I haven't spoken to the person in a couple of years. And I've just phoned them and I've just been totally authentic because there's no other way to do it. So I said, listen, this, I need to tell you something I think God told me. So listen, do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm okay in my head, but this is it. And then I say it to them and every time it's, it's been a hundred percent. The first time I ever remember doing it, I'm just trying to think, was it the first time? The first time I do you remember doing it was as I say I went to school in South London college in East London and now I'm in uni so there was a friend that I had from secondary school in South London haven't spoken to this person for years but I still had his number not sure if it worked and whilst I was praying he came to mind and this this links a bit of my purpose but I've, it's been used other times kind of outside of that but whilst I was praying he came to mind and the truth is, I don't remember the message. Um, I think I do remember. I was going to say I don't remember the message, but I think the message was to tell him to to come to the faith. I think that's what it was. Or maybe it was something else. I, I don't remember, but I just remember God bringing this person to my mind. And he used to be my, well, one of my best friends in secondary school. And I called him years later and his phone worked. And we kind of had small talk. And then I just said to him, listen, it's been a few days where I believe God told me something. And then I think the actual day I called him, I asked for a sign. I asked for a specific sign from God. If this is you, make this happen. And like the thing happened. So I gave him all the context in the background. So I said, so I need to tell you this. And again, I don't remember exactly what I said to him. But what I do remember is when I said it to him, he just started saying, oh, my days. Oh, my days. And he just started like, it was almost a pause. Then he just started going into one. Then he's like, Jeff, you never guess what happened. You never believe what happened. So the context is he, I'm not sure if he was still in the gang at the time or whether this was previous, but he was in the gang anyway. And there was a time where they, they, they were kind of attacked by another gang and some of them ran away. He chose not to run away. As a result, he was stabbed. But this other gang were actually quite serious. So... So he was in conflict and he could have let it go. But as a gang member, that's 
you know, what is that? It, the, the sort of road runs on reputation. So you've been stabbed, you haven't retaliated. In his defense, the people who stabbed him were kind of at the top of the chain. So in some ways, he could have let it go, but it was still kind of really getting to him. And he had been stabbed, I believe, sort of months before that. But in this period of his life, he said he prayed. And he said it just kept on coming back to him. And he was so angry at the person who stabbed him. And then he said he prayed and he said to himself, God, if you're real, give me a sign in seven days. If not, I'm going to kill him. That's what he said. So the silence, I think, is when it came to him. And he just said, I think this is the sign from God. Like, I think this is the sign from God. And I was like, listen, that's amazing. And I think this is too. And yeah, we, we kind of kept in touch for a while after that. And then, and then we lost touch again. Wow. So, so that's kind of what I mean when I say, I think I, <laughs> I hear God. Yeah, so, such, yeah. A, such a story. I got a little shivers. And, and then if this isn't too much of a bridge, maybe we can just hold that at the energy of this part of the conversation as we move into the next bit. Because I want to I wanna know a bit more about then this was all happening for you. This is going on. This shift had happened. And then you'd worked at the school mm-hmm. on the placement. And then at some point, you after that, you moved into doing that work more often. And that, in the end, brought you to coaching. Is that right? So that was my first placement at uni, my first six months. Then my second six months, um, my placement was coming up. And again, this is a time where I felt like I heard God. So I just had a sense that I shouldn't get a placement from the university. So Jeffrey, tell us about, bring back for us, connect for us, the this time at university on the placement to, you know, you'd, you then had the experience with Daniela and then moved on to this sense of to, to doing some training yourself. So connect those dots for us. And then I want to hear a bit more about how your work's evolved since then and, and, and how it is right now. Yeah. So, so what happened is the first placement in the school um, was my first uni placement. The second placement I had um, was with Daniela. That's when I met Daniela. And that's, that's a, that's a, um, I believe that was another divine sort of intervention. So what happened is it was again time for placement number two of my course. And the uni do help you with a course, but I felt a sense that I shouldn't go with a uni course. I just felt as though God was saying he would provide a course. And this is another one of those test and faith moments. So from September to December of that particular year, that's when we had to find our placement ready to start in Jan. And by February of the year when we're supposed to have started, I, I didn't have a placement. And the uni sort of phoning me up saying, you know, what's going on? And I'm having to say to them, you know, I'm sort of speaking to these people, I'm reaching out. And I don't, I, I'm just reaching out to people and not hearing back, telling people I need a placement. But I have this big sense that I shouldn't, let the uni find me a placement but sort of pressures pressures on so I was just like what's going on long story short I got some work with the yacht um, but what they said to me is they can't fulfill the requirements of my placement and, and for people who don't know again what's what's oh, the, the yacht um, the yacht the youth offending team 
in my borough. So I, I, I approached them the same way I was everyone else. And I got some work experience with them. And it, it just wasn't going to be enough to fulfill my placement, but I literally wasn't doing anything. So on one of the, the times I was working with them, one workers said to me, you know, what do you want to do? when you finish uni and I said to be honest I want to work with the youth offending team because the work you're doing looks amazing etc etc and he just looked at me and said Jeffrey don't work for us I see that you have huge potential and this isn't this isn't a place for you like there's more you can do so I thought wow then he told me about a charity called the kids company which some people may know um, of and it shut down in 2015 because of some controversy and I basically researched them. First time I heard of them, it was absolutely amazing what they were doing. I thought this was fantastic. So I basically reached out to them. And that was a journey within itself. But that's how I got my internship at the kids' company. And Daniela was my line manager. Mm. Um, and that's so, and that's when I experienced coaching for the first time. So I I knew I wanted to be a coach sort of one day. And then not too long after that, I graduated university. And shortly after graduating university, um, the Mo Foundation started as a charity and offered a coaching course, which I got a gifted place on. So mm. I actually got it for free. And that's how my journey into coaching began. And as I say, by the time I was doing the stuff with um, kids company I was really getting a sense of the types of works I wanted to do but in my head it was always to be a coach kind of one day so after university I got a job with kids company and that job wasn't as a result of my internship and placement of course when I finished university the first people I reached out to was the kids company and there, there was no job no vacancy but the Mo Foundation, whilst I was on an internship, did a project with Kids Company where they took some of the young people away. It was 18 to 25-year-olds. I was 22 at the time, but I went along as a peer mentor, so I wasn't a young person in the program, but I was, a, I was like a peer mentor, as I say. But they gave me a coach. So I, I, I got a, a coach through them. And... This coach and I would sort of meet at cafes and stuff like that. Then on this one particular day, she said, shall we meet at the kids' company? And I said, yeah, that's fine. And then she did all the legwork. So she reached out to them and and that's where the meeting was. Now, again, you know, I started being a bit more serious and meticulous with my time. So I had in my mind, any meeting I have, be there 15 minutes before. I thought the meeting was at 11 o'clock. And imagine, Robbie, the day before, I always knew the meeting was at 11 o'clock. But the day before, I said, just check what time it is. So I've checked the text message, and I have seen 11 o'clock. That's what I've seen with my eyes. So if I'm going to be there a few minutes before, that means 10.45. My, taking the train, it was about 20 minutes. So on my way to the train station, I get a text from the coach to say, I'm just waiting in the reception. And I just responded and said, yeah, that's fine. I'll see you soon. I'm on my way. So I'm on the tube and it just dawned on me. It's like, wait, I'm trying to get there 15 minutes early. But she's sort of an hour early. <laughs> Why is she an hour early to our meeting? So I was like, could it be our meetings at 10? 
and I actually think it's at 11. But I was like, no, I checked. I got off the train and I'm just like, so obviously apologetic. I've left this woman waiting an hour. So I just legged it, um, you know, from the station to kids' company um, head office. And as soon as I walked through the door, the CEO of kids' company is there, Kimina Batman Gelish. And she turns around to me and says, oh, you must be Jeffrey. Congratulations on getting a 2-1 in your psychology degree. So firstly, if anybody knows Camilla Batmangelis, you can Google her. She's a character. She does not look or dress like a, a woman you'd see every day. So she's a character. So I've, and, and at the time, she was basically famous, you know, could be seen as a celebrity. Sort of, you know, she was on the news and stuff like that. So I'm kind of like, whoa, it's Camilla, it's you. And you're talking to me about, like, how did all of this work? But of course, my coach waiting for me for, for 45 minutes meant Camilla had come in at that time, a couple of minutes before I had. She had introduced herself to Camilla, told her why she was there. So by the time I had got there, all the sort of legwork had been done. And then she said, oh, so what are you doing now that you've graduated? I said, I'm looking for work. She said, come work with us. Then she told this receptionist, give Jeffrey my um, my email address, let him email me. And true to her word, I emailed her. The meeting took a while, but they, they put me on another internship for three months, I think, just to test how I was. And the line manager was like, we absolutely need to hire him. So, you know, the fourth month, they gave me a full-time contract. And for me, that's just my faith linked in all, all over again. Because as I say, I knew what time it was. The, well, I thought I knew the meeting was at 11. And I said to myself, even the day before, just check, Jeffrey. And the time I saw was 11 o'clock. And had I gone on time, we would have been in a coaching session and had no idea Camilla was coming in or out of the building. And who knows where I would have been. So, you know, I very much see that as design. It, absolutely. And it's funny, you know, I thought the story, I wondered if the story was going to be a bit like that, but I thought it was going to be that you were really early. So you were sat in the in the in the reception for ages. But what that, that, that is such an awesome story because of that kind of that nature of it, that that coach ended up having that conversation with that particular person at kids company at that particular moment. And here you are. Literally, I walked in the door and she knew who I was. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. So so that's how I um sort of got into the work and that's and um and actually before that I'd done the mo course and then I got into the work, I was very much using it. Mm. And um yeah, I wanted to use it in prisons as well. Yeah. And so one of the questions that comes up for me is you thought maybe I'll be a coach one day, right? Yeah. Um, and instead, here you are. Here you are now, age thirty, and you've been coaching for years. Mm. Like, what's that? What's your reflections on that? On the fact that you've you found these skills so early and have been using them now for I don't know when that course was, but presumably six, seven, two thousand and two thousand and twelve. That course was right. So eight years ago, as as we're talking yeah. about it, you've been using the skills for that long. Why do you think it was that you thought you would do it one day? And and instead, it's been, you know, here right now. My my, my idea for doing it one day is because, you know, my, my thinking was it cost a lot of grand, you know, it cost a yeah. few grand to do a coaching course. So at the time, I didn't have a few grand. The second question was, if I have a few grand, am I going to spend it on a course? Um, no, I'm not. You know, I, 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 I just 
you know, my, my mind at the time didn't process how that would be value for money. So I thought hopefully when I'm sort of maybe 30 or maybe towards my 40s, I'd have a bit of money, have some experience and be able to afford the course and see the value for it, etc. But it's it's what I wanted. So mm. when it became available, I grabbed it and used it with open arms. And that is one of the great things about the Mo Foundation, right? right. Is that it is an accessible, really accessible way to learn about coaching and but, but yeah. and you do work with them now i know you have you know yeah. a couple of roles with them so maybe for people who don't know about mo although they might have heard about it from katrina who was a guest earlier in an earlier episode yeah. um tell us a bit about mo about the work you do there and why that work is important to you mo and the work i do there so with Mo at the moment, I am at a what we call master level trainer, a master level coach trainer. And what that basically means is I'm a lead trainer for their coach course. People come in the courses to become coaches, but I also oversee the process of bringing other people up to the level of lead trainer and um, and even even the course itself. So myself and two others that I, I sort of collaborate with, um Mark and Tony, um uh Mark Bixter, Tony Phillips, I'll give them a shout outs. We are also growth directors for Mo. And what that basic I'm I'm sort of chopping and changing. So myself, Mark and Tony are growth directors for Mo. We help Mo to basically expand and spread the goodness. And that's that's how I say it in a nutshell. Um we are also free master trainers. So what that means is, for example, when good happened, Mo used to be all face to face. We are the ones who played with the material and brought it virtual. And we've had three iterations of it. So, you know, bringing it virtual at first was a nine-week course. Um, we all tried that. I was fortunate enough to do the very first one. Um, then we did another six-week one, and we, we went with that for a while. And now it's the newest six-week one, which seems to work. So those are some of the roles we have in it. Plus making sure everyone's we do sort of QA quality assurance so people who are on the trainers pathway um are are good you know we really support mowing making mo grow helping mo to grow get out there and making sure the program is is well from all different angles that's the easiest way for me to say it why do I do it was your question because what mo offered me was an avenue that changed my life you know um, I'm now self-employed as a coach and as a trainer. Those skills, both of those skills started with Mo. I went on the trainer's pathway, which gave me the ability to train in front of live audiences uh, for in a safe environment. You know, I was given small modules to do um, and do it really well, which then built my confidence to do larger modules to do to, to start running the course. And of course, it gave me the valuable skill of coaching, which I just, which I now use. So what I do for them is purely to give back. And no, that's not true. It's, it's mainly to give back, but it's also extremely enjoyable. It's, you know, very, very, very enjoyable work. Um, I just, I just really enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so that, you know, you said earlier that pre, pre-coronavirus pandemic, mm. um, your your work was mainly training, I think you said, and facilitation maybe. So what? Why do you think? What's the question? It's like 
like what is it that you you lo- you love about that work and and why was it that it ended up after several years that 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 was what you found the work you found yourself doing you mean sort of the training yeah element um partly because of i think my impact as a trainer you know and the biggest part is I believe God uses me in training, if I can just be candid. I believe it's the way he uses me to really, really support people. So I do skills, I do courses such as um, conflict resolution and handling difficult people and situations at work or um, communication at work or, or even coaching skills. Um, you know, courses around, what would I say, leadership, communication and personal effectiveness. And the purpose of that is to make people more confident and competent at work. And it's mainly based on the feedback that I get um, is beyond what I think I alone have done. So there's an example. Um, You may or may not know that the government have started this sort of new apprenticeship scheme where it's for sort of, these are the two levels I know about, level three and level five. So you can work in for a company, and I think the company has to, you know, have certain requirements, but they can basically train people to level three or level five. It's kind of like for their employees to make them leaders at, at one of those levels. And therefore, these professionals then go on an apprenticeship scheme, and it's a, it's a new way that the government's kind of brought in. And I... I was drafted on a program for that. And the, the company that I do it with, it, you know, their, their first kind of partnership, it's, it's all very much in pilot stage. So the program happened and then they had, a, they had another meeting, a sort of debrief meeting on what's our learning and stuff like that. Now, I had, I don't really remember the story properly, but I had spoken to the managing director of that company that day because I think I'd received some positive feedback or something like that, but we had a really positive conversation. Then he and someone else went to one of the apprenticeship companies. And he's, when I saw him later on in the day, because I was in the offices, he said, Jeffrey, what have you done? And then he mentioned the company. I was like, oh, what? What's going on? He's <laughs> like, we had the meeting with the three managing directors of the company and they stopped the meeting and said, and who is Jeffrey? Because everyone keeps going on about bloody Jeffrey. And there were, there were really two groups, both of sort of 14 to 16 people. So if you imagine, I've sort of worked with both groups with two different courses. One was communication at work or effective communication. One was um, handling difficult people and situations. So they've kind of got 32 members of staff who've all been on the course and they were just really singing my praises to the extent that they were talking about in a management meeting saying, you know, and who is Jeffrey and what has he done to the team? And for me, that's not necessarily ordinary feedback, if you see what I'm saying. I think that goes beyond, like in terms of the actual evaluation forms, they're, they're generally like really, really positive And that's what I'm used to. But when it goes beyond a further step, I just think, you know what? I'm being used. And it's because of... When I, because of my position in terms of what I think I'm doing, I'm changing lives. I think that's how I go into a room. So whatever course I'm delivering, it's I'm going to try and make this so 
practical and insightful for you, it will change your life. And that's kind of the mindset I go in with. And I think it really works. And yeah, the, the feedback is just echoed. And that's what I always aim to do. So, so that's really why I do training, because I feel like I, I can have that impact on a scale and with lots of people. Plus, I, I just enjoy meeting lots of different people. Mm. Mm. And you talked a little bit earlier about how since um, since the pandemic, the balance has shifted a bit away from that and there's been some more coaching coming in. Mm. But tell me a bit about how your work, your one-on-one work with clients in different mm. ways, but particularly coaching, has evolved. And yeah, what, what it that includes some associate work, it sounds like, with people like the Young Women's Trust, but also other things. So, yeah, how has that evolved and, and what kind of coaching work do you do now? Yeah, so, you know, cult, um, sort of lockdown has has made me sort of coaching a totally new way. And as I say, my my main coaching experience was for Spark Inside, whom I've done a lot of work for. Spark Inside is the charity that run workshops in prison who I've done a lot of work for and I'm one of their head coaches and that's mainly where I was coaching and you know as I say my my purpose for becoming a coach was actually to to work in prison so I was very very happy with that and then I got and and, and how are you supporting the people you're coaching then how are you supporting them what are you supporting them with um so it's life coaching so we go in and we run a workshop and when the workshop's done they have the, the young people we work with in prison um, have the opportunity to opt for one-to-one coaching. So I start working with them in prison and through the gates. So when they come out in the community and just offer them coaching um, to, to the sessions are over, and that's that's the support I offer. And um, when lockdown happened and a lot of sort of my work changed and paused for a bit, um, then Young Women's Trust um, were looking for coaches and were hiring. And then I applied for them. So then I had two associate roles, um, Spark Inside and Young Women's Trust. And Young Women's Trust work with young women between the ages of 18 to 30 to support them with um, getting into employment. So it's that type of work that I was doing. But it's also life coaching as well. And most recently, um, Frontline, I don't know if you've heard about them. Um, They're a graduate scheme that, support high-performing graduates or career changes to go into the field of social work. So Frontline this year started a new project. So they've always had coaches for their graduate program, i.e. the graduates and career changes. And this year they started the pilot project where the, the graduates and coaches, the graduates and people on their program, their managers are called alternate social workers. So this year they started the pilot project where they have offered coaching to the consultant social workers and they were looking for four coaches and I'm very happy to say I was one of them. Mm. So that's also my newest. So what that meant is in the space of lockdown, these have been some of the new sort of engagements I've had. Um, Yeah. And that's, that's what my coaching work really looks like. Um, in terms of sort of private clients, I don't, for example, look for private clients. I, I do get some. They generally come through referral. So maybe people who know about me or may have had coaching from me 
and that's how I get private clients. Yeah. Um, and there's a few questions I, I want to ask about that, but one of them I think is interesting thing with these three different associate roles that you've got it sounds like the young women's trust was just that was an application process uh, and that's fairly straightforward in some ways but how did it come about you know one of the things so it's interesting there are lots of different ways to run a coaching business and yeah. different and one of the things I really believe is is you know there's no right way right and people should find the one that works best for them and and for some people they love the idea of the entrepreneurial increasing one-on-one private clients for themselves and and some people love the idea and some people want to mix but some people love the idea of oh yeah i'd love to just work for one of these organizations doing amazing work like spark inside or, or frontline were they application processes how did it come about that you ended up coaching for them um all three of them application interview and sometimes assessments uh, mm-hmm. processes no so not not sometimes assessments for all of them application interview and assessment of that i went through that three-stage process with all of them and why do you think that you got through on all of them <laughs> um i think i'm good at what i do i think i'm like quite effective at what i do and i know i've gotten much better um and I'm, I'm very serious about what I do. And I feel as though I have a special gift. And, you know, this is something I've realized lately, but I feel like I can really connect with people. I think one of the biggest strengths of is to be able to connect with people and build a relationship and where they feel trust and are happy to be challenged in a positive way. And I feel like I can do all of that well. I can connect with people well build that sense of trust and challenge them in a very positive way, which they recognize and, and accept. Yeah. And I, I think that's spot on with that. I think there's like, when I think about the associate bits of work that I got, especially you know, there are a couple that really helped me take the leap to be full time. And, mm. you know, it's like in some ways, I don't think I was quite experienced enough to do either. Um, and yet for some reason they both, like I got, they, they both happened and they both have been financially a really important part of the kind of mm. ecosystem of my work or whatever for the last three or four years. And I think the same thing, like when, when I was reflecting, why did they happen and what was it that I had? And I think it, it, it a lot of it is that same piece. It's like, have you got good at what you do? Mm. And then have you developed and learned how to connect with people? Those are two really, really powerful things which whatever kind of work you're doing with people are really important, you know, parts of of why things happen, I guess. Yeah. That that makes me think of a question I haven't asked Jeffrey, which is you're self-employed now, right? And how did that come about and when, and is it, is that the pattern you've had the whole time? And yeah, how do you, you, is it something you love or something like how, how, how is that for you as part of this work? Yeah. So, that was definitely um, a slow burning candle in, in, in my respect. And how did it come about? So when Kids Company closed down in 2015, um, I was definitely looking for work. You know, the way it sort of closed down is I went to work on Wednesday. I watched the six o'clock news. I found out I'm not going to work on Thursday. 
Yeah. And it was like, wow. So I wasn't like, obviously, oh, I really need for work. And a couple of things happened. First thing is I felt God say, go self-employed. Mm. So I felt God tell me to, to go self-employed. Then what then happened is I started having a lot of kind of recruiters uh, messaging me on LinkedIn to, to in some ways offer me work. And then even people that I'd come across like in my, in my time working for them um, were reaching out to me, sort of like managers and stuff saying, Oh, Jeffrey, very sorry to happen here. What happens kids company? We've got this, if you're interested. So that just said to me, I can get work. Like, mm. If I need to get work in this field, I get work. It's literally like coming through thick and fast. And I do feel as though God said, go self and played. So, hmm, like, can I do it? And just in terms of praying, like, Lord, lead the way. And, um, yeah, all, all I can say is even in the root and field of self-employed, work came to me. And that, that's what I can say. I would literally just get emails. And around that time of Kids Company, people asking me to do sort of self-employed stuff and, and not so much coaching, more workshops and stuff like that. And, and then I needed to get paid legally for it. So, yes. <laughs> so then, yeah, I, I set up a company. Yeah. And that's, that's how my journey of self-employment started. And no, it wasn't. It wasn't, um, it was just the first. And after month three, if I remember correctly, my first ever month, so, you know, I finished sort of kids' company um, in August. That's when it closed down. And I think we got some kind of statutory pay or something like that. So I got some money for August. Then September was my first month of self-employment and whatever I did, I think I worked one day or one evening and, you know, managed to charge the client who I did the work for about £250. That was my work for, for, that was my money for September. Then, if I remember correctly, like October, I maybe got about £780. Then I think November, when I kind of, looked at everything all together I got about 1,600 pound and then I reflected and I said this has pros and cons the pros are you do some work where you can get a lot of money you know as an employee I wasn't getting 250 a day so that that was great but if I work one day I get 250 that's not so great I could get more literally working anywhere so I had that, and then the, the, the month I got 1,600, that was the month I got paid 1,600. I had done different types of work and it all came in at a particular point. So I began to learn that you can do work here and get paid much later. It's not every month. Mm-hmm. I just began to learn. Mm-hmm. And then I also thought to myself, I have worked damn hard, very, very hard. And I've got £1,600. Now, if I look at that as an employee role, 
that is about 25k and that's what you get after tax I said I don't know if this is going to work out well in a way that will be useful to me so I started looking for part-time work so I could basically do self-employment full-time and then for a couple of years I was navigating both and I managed to find some work which was perfect working with high risk offenders mm. um in in sort of a hostile environment sorry when I say a hostile environment in a hostel oh, yeah <laughs> um, yeah yeah um and of course I believe my calling was to work with offenders so I started doing that, which basically paid me money to live on where and and live life and that's and then and then I slowly built the business but I say I slowly built the business I haven't kind of really done anything so over the as in in terms of like from a business angle for example I'm in the process of doing my website now and I'm talking about this started in 2015 and we're now like five years later so it was very much things such as associate work and other bits and bobs that would come that would start to build my experience and credibility which I generally saw year on year picking up so and even in terms of some of the pay I was getting um, year on year picking up. So it got to the point where it was a slow transition from mainly working and doing bits of work till it sort of being a bit equal, till it getting to the point where the work was taking over. And then whenever I, for example, wasn't working as an employee, I was doing some self-employed work. And then just came the big shift. But what was also positive about that is I was able to live my life and not necessarily go through what some fully self-employed people go through because I was getting consistent income. I just chose not to live a lavish life. But what I did allow me to do is, you know, I I met my wife um, as, as, as friends, but I met her weeks after Kids Company. And... By the time I'd been become fully self-employed, we had done everything to the extent where we'd even bought a house. So we'd been engaged, we'd been married, we'd done all of that stuff. And working and actually getting paid supported that journey. Had I not done that, um, I, I, I'd probably be in a very dif- different place. Yeah, it's a really val. I, I did a really similar thing. Got found some work that enabled me to phase it in, and it made such a. I think it made such a difference to my psychology while I was doing it. All really because everything didn't depend on like the rent, the mortgage, paying for the wedding didn't all depend on <laughs> on on that stuff, right? On on whether I could get the bit of work that was right in front of me. Um, I'm curious. I want to hear a bit in a, in a minute. I want to hear a bit about what's coming up for you and like what you're looking forward to and getting excited about. But first, I wonder if, um, like, what is it that? And also, just want to catch like it's really worth acknowledging before I do that. Before I ask that, that what you've just said is is amazing. Which is, you just did the work, kept doing it, kept doing it as well as you could, and work mm-hmm. kept coming. And it's yeah. just like that's not true unless you're doing really good work. Right, that's the thing we can be pretty sure of. If you're doing terrible work, that wouldn't have come. And that's again, it's another real lesson I think for people. It's just like, do the absolute best work you can, and mm. then the word of mouth business happens. 
yeah. you're doing really good work, people will tell other people about it. Yeah. And they will come back and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, I got two questions, actually. So you choose which one of these you want to answer or answer both. Like one is a little bit about, I guess, on that journey, one of the things that's tricky as a self-employed person is, like you mentioned, 250 pounds a day and different amounts of money. It's like, how do you think about the amount of money you charge people, whether that's for training, for coaching, for um, for facilitation, like any of those things, that kind of question about how you think about charging, really. And then the other one is, I'm, I'm curious that, you know, what you've from what you've learned from Spark Inside and Young Women's Trust and, and, and now Frontline, when people do come to you for private coaching, how do you choose to work with them, if that makes sense? So you choose whichever of those is a more fun question or answer both. <laughs> Yeah, um, I can answer the, the second one because I think that will be shorter. And then I'll go into the first one. So one of the things I, um, particularly when some things were in the pipeline, is I thought about I'm I'm sort of an associate and, you know, doing bits of work. What does it all mean? Who am I working with? What impact am I having? The work with Spark Inside very much um a calling i believe part of the reason why i'm here the work with young women's trust i saw that as life coaching my chance to work with people in the community but this is for an organization so what that meant is what would i for example get from working with a private client that i'm not getting with young women's trust and my, my short answer is probably not that much from so what that made me think to myself is I don't need to have that focus. Then frontline comes in very much as part of where I think I'm headed next. And it's also in my own development. And I want to do new things and develop and grow. And that was very much what do I get from frontline that I'm not getting from other places, let's say, leadership coaching and coaching leaders and managers. And again, I'm very fortunate that I have had some that's come. So I've tasted it. And it's, well, I want to venture more into into that aspect. So when I get private clients, um, I basically, I mean, we have a conversation and I, let them know, you know, I, I basically just filter with them, is this what you really need to do? And are you serious? Will you be committed? If they are, then I sort of just take them on. And that doesn't happen a lot. Because I'm sort of not looking for private clients, they they come to me and if someone's come to me and I've kind of gone through a CIF process and I know they're serious, then I'll be committed and serious with them. And, and then we work together for a number of sessions and aside from that, you know, that's not an area that I focus or, or, or go down or explore much. Um, your second question, or well, which was actually your first one, if you could <laughs> remind me. Yeah, it was just like one of the questions for self-employed people often is how do we think about money and charging yeah. as part of our yeah. work? And whatever that brings up for you, any insights that you've kind of gained from the last five, six, seven years? Yeah, so... This is an area of development for me because I know I have notoriously undercharged. <laughs> I'm sure you're, and, you're not alone in that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I know I've been notorious and undercharging and it's a couple of things. It's firstly seeing the value in what I do. And perhaps I come across, you know, maybe quite confident in what I do. Right now, I'm actually feeling that. I don't mean literally right now, but I mean where I am in my career, I'm feeling a lot more confident in sort of what I do and really understanding the value I bring. But it hasn't always been the case. And I suppose I've sort of just done it always with a mindset of, hoping hoping and I still hope I do well but it's almost like I was always saying oh that was lucky but that was really good but you know not necessarily understanding so if that was my mindset it's difficult for me charge and what I can say is I've always charged the rate I'm happy with but definitely not for example the top end of a rate I I could have had and I'm just trying to navigate and balance that. I also, you know, it's always de- also development in what does an organization have, have as a budget and stuff like that. And, you know, I recently did work with a, <laughs> with, with a, with a lady um, doing some work for a charity. And we've, yeah, and it was, it was just interesting, her perspective on it. And she just really raised the game and the bar in terms of, she she led what she she basically got the work and asked me to to help her deliver and in terms of the rate she got me it was it was a great one and it's not a rate that i do and she was just like like jeffrey why like that's, <laughs> you're, you're seriously underselling yourself you know fix up and the, the interesting thing is this was with a charity mm. now i do know example speaking to the ceo of the charity otherwise that's not something that's like affordable for them i.e they they made a bid for this but what the lady was telling me was that's not your concern the the people can make bids and they do make bids so let them make the bid and then pay you for your service and that's been a real encouragement i'm also now married and my wife has a very business and strategic mind so i'm probably not even allowed to charge certain amounts anymore. My my wife, uh, whenever I'm worried about money, she says, Robbie, it's really easy. Just double the number of clients you've got and double your rates. Uh, that's the Emma <laughs> Swale uh, vision for success. Yeah. But like, but there's something really important in what you said there, both the story mentioning your wife and also mentioning this this colleague. Like we all need a colleague like that, really. Um, and it, you can, but I sometimes, I used to, we, we don't do much work anymore. My friend Nicole and I used to do some some kind of work together sometimes. And we would do that for each other when we were having yeah. those conversations. Whoever was kind of bringing in the work, be like, is this an okay rate? And the other person would, looking at it from more the outside, would more often than not be able to say, uh, we should probably be charging more than that for this. Yeah. You know, and it, I don't know why, what it is. Maybe it's specific. Maybe it's especially if you're working with with charities, maybe not. Um, there is something about underpricing that happens yeah. a lot or that nervousness. And it is an absolute privilege. Like what you said about, I feel lucky to be doing this work. And there I know that go. some of that is, is, is definitely you underselling the value that you bring because they were also lucky to have you. And if, if, if they hadn't been lucky to have you, you wouldn't have had this business, which works purely on <laughs> word of mouth for five years yeah. or whatever it is. Right. So they were lucky to have you. And it is like, I certainly feel this. Um, in in a lot of work I do, like well, it's an absolute pleasure to do do a lot of this work. And if you love what you do, it's it's then a kind of weird thing to also 
ask for a lot of money because often, you know, I don't know how you feel about this, but often after a day of doing great work, I feel really good. <laughs> and that's sometimes exactly. like payment in itself. And who needs, who cares about the money except when you go pay the mortgage and, the mortgage and, and, totally and you want to go on holiday and that kind of thing. I totally get you, Robin. And again, I've, I've much of what I, I, well, not much of what I get paid to do, I do for free and, and have done for free. So then there's a, there's a big jump between, look, I actually want to do the work in prison. So thank you for paying me. But it was always part of the plan. I was going to do it anyway. And I actually had my first, my first ever coaching session in the prison was not with Spark Inside. It was with another um, charity called Trailblazers who were a volunteer mentoring organization. And they, you know, volunteers are mentor and, and you mentor someone in prison. And Spark Inside didn't exist at that time. So when I had my coaching qualification, that's all I wanted to then go and volunteer on a Saturday to go into a prison and coach young men. And I knew the difference between sort of coaching and mentoring. So I thought there was a lot of value in offering coaching. And again, I think that one experience was a true and real God moment because it showed me exactly that the outcome of that session showed me I was exactly on the right path. And it just so happened that was the only person I worked with for that organization. But I think it's all I needed. While protecting the confidentiality in all the important ways, what can you tell us about what was it that you saw that, that, that told you you were in the right place, the outcome of that session? (laughs) It's so interesting because, um, so there's a particular prison, which I probably won't mention the prison. And at this time where I did the coaching, they, um, they were a prison for 18 to 25 year olds. Now I'm not criticizing sort of any government or anything like that. I think that is absolutely the worst thing you could ever do for 18 to 25 year olds together in prison. It's basically gangland in my head and where people are probably somewhere in their prime. I just think that's one of the scariest places you can be in prison. And from my interaction with many people who'd been in prison and also been there, they agree. Mm. You know, it was one of those prisons. Sometimes you may be in a prison and they transfer you to another prison. And I heard stories of everyone refusing to go there or asking to go somewhere. Like, it's not a prison environment you wanted to be in just because of the nature of the type of people that would be there. You know, it's going to be everyone, as I say, in their prime, different gangs is the problem, particularly if you're in there without your gang. Um, and sometimes if people were getting sent there from another prison, they would make the joke and say, knuckle up, basically saying, get ready. And I even spoke to someone. This is the only one person um, who told me he, he liked it there. Um, and he was quite a fierce person. And I think it just made him really feel like an alpha male. Hmm. But he said, look, in that prison, even the neeks do their thing. And neeks is basically an English for saying geeks. So he's saying, even in that prison, the people who are sort of a nobody do their thing, meaning everyone steps up. So that's the type of environment it was. And for me, that was like, but that's the prison I went to mentor in. So I've gone to the prison and they've given me two people. I met the second one like 
once and that was kind of it. I don't really remember what happened. I think maybe he left or something. But you always had two people at a time. But the first person I met was a white man and interestingly enough, had tattoos everywhere. So tattoos on his knuckles and sort of like gang affiliated tattoos, tattoos on his neck, um, and tattoos on his face. And the tattoos on his face were teardrops. So at that time, those things were significant. And it was said that if you had teardrops under one eye, every teardrop represented someone, for example, who you know had died. But on the other eye, it represented people you had killed. And I've gone into this prison with this white male who, quite frankly, looks quite intimidating, very intimidating. And I'm seeing teardrops kind of in his eyes thinking, is this a murderer or is this, is this someone who's lost a lot of people? So I'm like, okay, that's who I'm with. Secondly, it's a London prison, which is predominantly sort of black and maybe even Asian. So in my head, understanding how things sort of go as well, saying it's one of two things for this white person, this white male I'm working with. He's having a difficult time in this prison or maybe he's running it. Because the way he profiles alone will draw attention to him. You know, sometimes for some of the, the white males that I've seen that are different demographic, not for example, not necessarily gang affiliated, but maybe in that age group, they're in the prison and they're a different cohort. So they don't necessarily get involved in some of the things that happen. But this person looks very much like he fits in the cohort, but he stands out. So he's just more noticeable. It turned out he didn't run the prison. He was having a difficult time there. But mm. he was he was really like, he was looking after himself. So that's the type of character he was. Now, the first time we met, we just really clicked. Such a nice guy. And I mean, he was young. He was 21, this person I'm telling you about. And with all these tattoos, he was actually 21 as well. But he was he was just a nice guy. And it, it turned out he'd actually lost a few people, what the tears drops re represented. And we, we really clicked, as I say. Then he told me a story. So he's serving time for a particular crime. But he's also on bail for another crime. He's told me he's not guilty to. And what if he's found guilty, he's, he's not going to get released he's going to have to serve serve additional time. The issue he had with that is he was expecting his first child. So he said, I do not, I absolutely do not want to be found guilty for this crime I didn't commit because I'm going to miss the birth of my first child and I'm going to go crazy. He basically had already decided he will wreak havoc in the system, which will probably even keep him in there for longer. But he just said he can't take missing the birth of his first child. So I was like, look, like you, I hope you come out too, you know, especially if it's something he didn't do. And he described to me the ins and outs of it and, and why he kind of got wrongfully caught for it. So that was week one. And we, we I suppose it's a bit of, um, you know, rapport building and really like a first session. So week two, we've gone in and the coaching has really started. And I don't necessarily remember the question I asked him, but I asked him a question. And then he put his head down and he was just there for a while. Then he lifted up his head. Then he put his head down again. And he was just there and I was thinking, what's going on? So then I said to him, are you, are you all right? And then he just looked up and he had tears in his eyes. And I was like, wow, 
And then the answer, his answer to my question, whatever it was, is because I'm a good person. And then he just started crying. So uh, that was just a powerful moment. I was like, gosh, I've made him cry. You know, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I really felt that kind of heart to heart. Mm. And that was amazing. So that was that was just, you know, I was like, this is really meaningful, really impactful. So then the session ends and then I came back next Saturday, third week in a row. So we met him and I'm just looking forward to me continuing and find out how he's been. But he's different this week. And I, I noticed he just seemed uneasy. He wasn't, he was, he was, he was very, he, he looked like he had something on his mind. He was still nice and normal to me, but he looked like he had something on his mind. So as we're talking, he just said, Jeffrey, I need to talk to you about something. I was like, yeah, go on. Then he said, I lied to you. And then he started crying again. So I'm like, oh gosh, what's going on? This is that second time in a row. We literally just started this meeting. And he's crying again. And I was like, okay, uh, yeah, what did you lie about? You know, what, what could you have lied about? And then he basically said, you remember that story I told you about the other crime I'm on bail for? I did do it. And then he, he, he explained to me the details and, and yeah, yeah, basically he did do the crime. So what, what he said to me is, you know, he was very apologetic, like, I'm so sorry for lying and stuff like that. Like, I, I, you know, I didn't want to lie to you and stuff like that. And then he also said, you know, since we since we left last time. So that's not even the order. Let me let me say in the order he said it. So he said, you know, very apologetic. And I was saying to him, look, it's it's all right. As in in myself. You know, I was like, I didn't even really feel the way that he lied. You know, you're telling me the truth now. It, it's OK. And he said, and what I've done is I've spoken to my lawyer and I told my lawyer, I want to change my plea from not guilty to plea. And that's when I was like, whoa. And then I was even thinking, did I do that? And I hope I didn't. Because my aim is to help people sort of come out in the community and live a different life. Like, I hope I didn't influence you in whatever way to do that. And I was just like thinking to my head. I don't want to, you know, I'm not saying he shouldn't have done it, I'm saying I don't want to be the one to tell people to do that. And he said, yeah. And my lawyer said, I'm stupid, you know, because there's no evidence. He said, you know, the case is going to get thrown out. But I said to my lawyer, no, I can't do that. I'm not going to lie because I'm a good person. And then it hit me. And I was like, wow. And then he said to me, and I know I'm going to miss, I'm probably going to miss the birth of my first child, but, and then he said something along the lines of, you know, I'm going to be a better man or something when I come out. I don't remember exactly, but I do remember he acknowledged his decision would have meant he would have missed the birth of his first child. And then he said to me, I just can't lie like that because I'm a good person. And he said, since we met last week, I just haven't been able to sleep because I needed to tell you. And I just said, his conscience has come alive in a totally different way. Yeah, wow. And the reason I knew what I was doing was the right thing is because one of the ways to stop reoffending is to take responsibility for your behavior and not do it again. 
And if he's just admitted to a crime that his lawyer, his representative said, they're not going to charge you for this because there's no evidence. But you're saying, no, I'm admitting to doing it. And you serve the time. And I thought re-offending is probably not in this guy's future. So again, the session ended. And I went back week four. And he wasn't there. And I never saw him again. Wow. Jeffrey, what a, what a beautiful yeah, story. Yeah. Uh, how interesting. And so much in there. Um, I'm aware we've been talking a long time now. You're going to be respectful yeah. of your time. Like, thanks so much for sharing so authentically, to use your word, but honestly, openly, all those things. Before we finish, is there anything else you want to say that we haven't said yet or anything you want to share about what's coming up for you? Um. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. <laughs> yeah. I think it's gone down a path that um, I definitely did not expect. But um, I mean, I, I don't know why I expected, but it wasn't to, <laughs> to have the conversation I've had. That's that's for sure. Yeah. So I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I want to say thank you. And in terms of what's coming up next, um, I mean, I'm, I'm up to a lot, really, which I think is exciting. And I'm quite, you know, happy and proud of my own journey. And in terms of, for example, what, where, where I think I'm going next, you know, I've become increasingly interested in just venturing more into sort of corporate coaching and executive coaching on that level. And my main purpose is it's a new experience, which I think will grow me in a different way. Plus, I also believe I could add huge value. You know, I see other people doing it and I just asked myself the question why not so I think that's really kind of some of my next new focuses and kind of direction where I'm going yeah yeah I have no doubt that you can add huge value um in those places no doubt at all so make sure that when you're doing that you charge them through the nose um <laughs> and yeah look Jeffrey like for people who are listening we'll put links to every all the organizations and things that we spoke about the people we spoke about in the in the links wherever people are listening and at thecoachesjourney.com but look Jeffrey thanks so much for all the openness and honesty in this conversation and excited to see what happens next for you Thank you very much, Robbie. Much appreciated. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Hello, it's Robbie here again. Just with a couple of things before you head on to whatever else you've got going on in the rest of your day. You've made it all the way to the end of this conversation with Jeffrey. Um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, both to have it originally and to listen back. Um, and there's just a couple of things you might be interested in. One is, um, if you're interested in supporting this podcast to help it continue, to help it grow, to help um, it reach more and more coaches and help and help us all um, continue doing this important work in the world, you might be interested in becoming a supporter of the Coach's Journey podcast. Um, you can do that um, at patreon.com slash the Coach's Journey. Uh, and um, that just involves giving a small amount of money Money every month, which can help me keep this podcast going and help it reach more people. You also might be interested in joining the Coach's Journey community. That is also a way of supporting the podcast and helping it continue, but it's also the most flexible and affordable way to work with me. Um, it, I designed it as a way to help coaches create thriving coaching businesses, to thrive as people while I do it, and to connect to other coaches who are on the path. So that you, we don't feel quite so alone because being a coach can be quite a solitary 
profession, despite the fact, of course, that we spend a lot of time um, in deep conversation with people. Membership of the Coaches Journey community starts from as little as about £10 a month um, and goes all the way up to about £100 a month. And that it involves coming along to group coaching calls, different numbers of calls a year, depending on the level of membership, and, and also potentially some one-on-one time with me. Uh, you can find out more about that at thecoachesjourney.com slash community or on the Patreon page. Um, and I hope to see, maybe see you at a uh, community call sometime soon. Of course, it's also really helpful to share the podcast, to rate it, review it, subscribe, follow, whatever your platform allows. Um, and I really appreciate all the help that you have given so far to help make this podcast a success and to um, help it reach more and more people. Big thank you to Ken Bruren, Kira Eastall, Sean McMonagall and Alex Swallow for their continued support. And um, hope to have you back with us listening to the Coach's Journey podcast again sometime soon. Mm-hmm.